Hello and welcome again to the Strange Room Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard. Such a real pleasure here today to welcome James Williamson. Hello there. Legend, legendary rock and roll Hall of Famer guitarist, especially noticeable for his work with uh, Iggy Pop and uh, obviously in, in the Stooges and a, a range of four artists. And we'd be playing a full range of music from James' uh, musical career today. We opened with uh, James Williamson and the Pink Hearts, and you send me down James's new album, Behind the Shade. Welcome, James. And tell us about the Pink Hearts. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about this group. We sort of came together uh, with a little bit of serendipity, but uh, love playing with all these people and uh, and really, really enjoyed making a record with them. And so... Now we're we're kind of at that phase where we're going to go out and play some live shows. So you're working with Frank Meyer and Petra Hayden. Frank Meyer, huh? Yeah, um, Frank. Uh, Frank, a, f- a few years back, you might recall, I did a record called Relict, yeah. and I had like 14 singers on it, um, which is impossible to tour. But um, when when some of them came to LA for a, a, a taping of a television show. Uh, we decided to put on a live show, and of course, I needed some some people to substitute for some of those singers. And I I got uh, Frank Meyer, uh, who I didn't know at the time, but Cheetah Chrome had recommended him, and I was impressed by his singing and his stage presence. So I went when I when I came around to be to write some new music last year, I thought of him and uh, and hooked up with him to write some lyrics with me. Um, and that worked out great. And then thought of uh, Petra Hayden, who I had used a number of times in the past, as far back as Ready to Die and uh, on on Relict and on uh, some of her own singles and and Acoustic KO, so lots of things. And uh, the combination between those two voices was just pure magic. So, uh, yeah, so that they've been a, a, a pleasure to work with. Would it be right to say that with the the Pink Hearts, you get to express uh, an even wider range of styles than you would confined to the Stooges? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it was just really uh, interesting. I mean, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have really thought of that initially, but uh, once I started working with them, uh, they have such a wide range. They're so versatile in their in their vocals that it completely frees me up to just write anything I feel like and they can handle it. Mm. And so it was just uh, it just super in that way. It really does show the album, and we I think we've got three tracks from Behind the Shade today that really do show the different shades, no pun intended, of the album. Yeah, I'm, I'm super happy with it. But not forgetting that, you know, you... you You've still got that rock heart to the uh, James Williamson and the Pink Hearts project, you know, with, with tracks like Riot on the Strip. Yeah, I, you know, I can't really. That's 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 me. I mean, I can't I can't be anybody else, and I can't play any other way, really. You know, even though I I can of course do uh, other styles and and have really throughout my whole career. I mean, for every. Um, sort of search and destroy there was a gimme danger you know or an open up and bleed and so forth so i i you know i, I i'm used to that but especially with this new album i was able to, to really expand on that a little bit how do you uh 
you know, write tracks these days? Is it in the band setting or are you just kind of playing with the guitar and riffing? Yeah, just the same as I've always done. I'm, you know, I'm kind of a solitary guitar player, if you will. That's that's really how I came about having a, a, my own style is that I just kind of, you know, I didn't have any band to play with. I just learned myself and I kind of used it as an emotional outlet. And I, I continue to do that today. I mean, I... I write what I do is I, I write riffs and, and kind of play them until I decide whether or not I can stand to play them for, you know, 10 days in a row and and then go and ask whoever's writing lyrics to what do they think and does that resonate with them and, and, you know, kind of take it from there. And that's the way Iggy and I did it. And that's the way Frank and I did it on this. That's great. Well, let's uh, play the second track today. And it is the wonderful James Williamson and the Pink Hearts, Riot on the Strip.
we're going to go back to uh, James Williamson and the Pink Outs at the final track of for today's podcast. But we're going to go right back now to um, 1972, 1973 to, to what is, you know, one of the greatest records ever made. And, and James, you know, you co-wrote all the tracks on that record. Yeah, Raw Power. I've heard that you, you got involved with the Stooges. Was that through, through Ron? Yeah, I guess in a, in a roundabout way it was. Um, Ronnie, um, I, I had formed a band, in, you know, a teenage band kind of in when I was like 15 or 16 called The Chosen Few. And uh, with a singer named Scott Richardson, then I got into all kinds of trouble and went to juvie and went juvenile home and went to, you know, off to school in New York and so on. And, and um, when I came back, of course, they had replaced me long before that, but uh, they had added a new bass player because one, the bass player that Kip Phillips that was playing with them had then himself, you know, start, started looking at, at other things. And so Ronnie was the new bass player. And when I came home for a vacation, we all went up to the gig, uh, which was up in Ann Arbor, because uh, I wanted to meet, you know, see the band and, and, and meet the new bass player. It turns out Iggy was there, too. And so I met them both at the same uh, show. Yeah, they, from there on, we were kind of uh, in touch with each other, if you will. We were, I wouldn't say close, but we were we were close enough, you know, kind of distant band friends, I guess. But as the years went by, uh, I continued to uh, stay in touch and so forth. And uh, eventually, after I got through with high school, I, I moved up to Ann Arbor myself. And uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up being in a, in a house, uh, sharing a house with, with a couple of the band members. And then the next thing you know, they sort of, assimilated me i guess <laughs> <laughs> you actually joined the the stooges in was that that in late 1970 yes that's that's right and was that in the period where there was some, you know some drug issues in the band and and the you know the the group split soon after that's right we um you know i joined they were um had finished funhouse and were sort of playing shows um around that but, you know, by that point, uh, the band itself, with the exception of Ronnie, were pretty, pretty well into uh, their drug lives. And, you know, of course, I fell right in with them. And, and uh, so the, the, the six months or so that I was in that, that lineup of the band were pretty bad. I mean, they were... You know, we were never sure when we get shows and we were never sure if everybody would show up to the shows. And, uh, you know, it was just no way to run a railroad. You know, we, we had, um, I think Danny Fields was trying to manage us at that point, but it was just such an unmanageable situation. And eventually, um, you know, like everybody kind of fell apart. I mean, uh, I ended up having hepatitis, so uh, I needed to, to, you know, rest. And uh, Iggy had his had drug problems. He needed to kick, and you know, just it was just all a big mess. So uh, we sort of dissolved at that point. Um, but a few months went by, and Iggy wanted to reform a new, wanted to make a new band with me, and so. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really. I'm a little bit skeptical of that at that point. But um, anyway, he went to New York and, um, you know, again, luckily for him and, uh, and me, really, um, he happened to be there when David Bowie came to New York. Bowie was a big fan, uh, you know, having seen the Cincinnati you know, pop festival footage of Iggy, you know, walking on the crowd and all that. And so he he wanted to meet him. And uh, and that was a fateful meeting because Tony DeFries, his manager, then took Iggy over to CBS and and uh, talked his way through a record deal. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call saying, you know, uh, you want to go to London like, you know, tomorrow. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm like going, well, let's see, my sister's couch, London. Mm, okay. You know? So we, we did. And uh, it was uh, sort of like parachuting into the ground zero of glam. Mm. Did you have the material written before you came over or were you kind of the, the material was still being worked on in London itself? We had nothing. Wow. We had, uh, I think we had two songs we brought over with us. Uh, I got to write and uh, sick of you. Mm. And both of those songs we uh, recorded while we were over there out, out in Wembley. I forget the name of the studio out there, but um, anyway, we recorded that as a demo and uh, our management uh, main man hated it, you know, so <laughs> there goes our idea of what we should be doing. Anyway, so meanwhile, I'm, uh, uh, we lived on Seymour Walk in Chelsea okay. um, and in a little muse house there. And, uh, you know, I would just write songs, you know, as they came to me on my acoustic guitar. Of course, it, 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 between then and, and when we had arrived, we did play one live show um, at the King's Cross Cinema. And it, uh, it was, you know, it just absolutely frightened the audience because in, in, uh, in England at that time, no one ever had, you know, sort of kind of confronted the audience like, like we did. And of course, Iggy kind of broke down the barriers between the performer and the audience, and he'd be out pulling your girlfriend's hair, you know, that kind of stuff. And the main man thought we were going to get arrested if we played any more more shows. So we, you know, we stopped playing live shows and just got concentrated on on writing the new material. Such a contrast when you come over to London and and the the, the music scene over here. You know, a lot of prog and sort of hippieish. Stuff yeah. still still around, whereas you guys come in and it's just full on rock. Yeah, in fact, that was the reason um, I kind of got ahead of myself. That was the reason that that the band reformed. Really, was we got over there and uh, the idea was Iggy and I would would find a rhythm section and make a new band. But we, as hard as we tried. You know, we just couldn't find anybody we could relate to or whose music we could relate to. I mean, we like T-Rex. I mean, T-Rex was like the Beatles over there at that time. And so we liked the, you know, the sort of the pop star aspect of all of that. But anybody who was really um, playing like us, there wasn't anyone. 
So we ended up saying, okay, well, then we'll, you know, Ronnie was a great bass player. And he, when I first met him, that's what he was doing. And so we just decided, okay, let's, um, let's move him over to bass. And, you know, he and his brother make a great rhythm section and let's, you know, let's do it. So that's kind of how we got back together. And then, of course, all the rest of the stuff came, came with that. The sound that you get on on Search and Destroy is just so incendiary. It's, you know, it's such a sort of heavy, blistering sound. Was was that your vision for for how that track would sound, or did that evolve in the studio? Well, I always wanted to play loud. I mean, that's kind of was always my thing. And so, even if you hear those demos of like "I Got a Right" and "Sick of You." which were done in a completely different studio with different gear. You know, I mean, the guitar was the same, but but everything else was different. It's still pretty blistering <laughs> because I would just take whatever amp I had, turn it all the way up, turn all the treble up, and just play as loud as I possibly could. The, the thing that was different about Raw Power was uh, up until we went into the studio in London, uh, the CBS studio in London, I had never played a Vox AC30. And so we're in there, uh, you know, trying to, you know, kind of bash out these songs. And the engineer asked me, you know, have you ever tried an AC30? And I said, no, and, you know, bring one down. And so he did. And, um, and I think that for me is like the perfect combination, the Les Paul and the AC30. So I, um, that's pretty much the sound that you hear on Raw Power. And it's been, it's really been my sounds, at least for recording, uh, ever since then, because it just, it just sounds the best. Um, you know, there, there are a number of other reasons why I sound so good on that album. Um, and one of those is just simply that, uh, we, we didn't know what we were doing. And so uh, Iggy, I, I assumed that he knew what he was doing. He'd made two albums before, um, and he acted like he knew what he was doing. The bass leakage, especially into the drums, was, was terrible. And so um, when eventually when David Bowie had to come and try to, try to sort of rescue that mix, he, um, he couldn't really use a lot of the bass and drums because they just had too much old track in them and I had overdubbed over all that stuff and so it just didn't didn't work so um, so therefore you pretty much hear guitar and vocals and the guitar of course sounds fabulous because I don't have any competition and I, I think I've said before, I, I think Jack White made an entire career around that you know.
In terms of Gimme Danger, was it your your idea to have different styles? You know, the, the heavier songs and then, a, a, you know, a couple of the more acoustic tracks? Yeah, you know, I I, um, I thought that, well, at the, at the time, uh, Neil's young, Neil Young's uh, After the Gold Rush was just coming out. And uh, I really liked the sound that those guys got. And I, you know, of course, it's very different from from anything we would do. But I, I thought that the acoustic guitar sounded really good on those records, and so I felt like, well, okay, I, you know, we need a few ballads. And I, you know, I've always been an acoustic guitar player, you know, kind of on and off. And I, uh, I, I thought it would it would sound great on this record, and I. Again, that engineer, and I wish I could remember his name, um, had suggested I get uh, bring in a Martin like a D28, you know, a big a big Martin, and because uh, I I had this little um, Gibson, uh, you know, B24, I think a, a very you know little guitar, and it you know it's fine for writing songs, but it. Uh, didn't record all that well, so he brought in this big D28 and with heavy-duty strings on it, and and I was just suffering through, you know, recording those tracks because, you know, harder big strings are are, are harder to play, you know, and and I'm used to playing real skinny strings, but it did get a great sound, and I, you know, again that formula has worked for me um, really over the entire course of my career. I, I you know, I record pretty much with a D28, or if not, uh, 
I, I have a, also a very old uh, D18 that I use a lot now. But anyway, those Martins, they just have a killer, you know, unique sound. of an influence on, on the record or do you just think that his his main role was just getting you signed and getting you in the right place to, to produce the music? 
Yeah, he that's that's right. I mean, he didn't he had nothing to do with the music at all. In fact, we really uh I mean, you know, we had some interaction with him in terms of of, you know, kind of acclimating to London a little bit and hung out with him over at his house sometimes and would see him at the office and he did make overtures to want to produce us. He was, you know, producing Mott the Hoople with all the young dudes. He he had Lou Reed over there. So, you know, David Bowie was a real affiliator. I mean, he really liked to surround himself with people that he thought were cool because they made him look cool too. And um, so we, we, but we rejected all of those overtures. We didn't want him, you know, him involved in the production at all. Um, and fortunately for us, uh, he started breaking in the U.S. And so Main Man uh, got busy, you know, working on that, uh, working on a sure thing, as it were, versus us. Uh, so they let us alone in the studio to do our thing, which is the only reason Raw Power was ever made, because had we had Bowie or had we had, you know, management um, sort of meddling in all of it, we they would have ne never let us make that record. It really had no commercial potential at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, his, his role turned out to be, you know, helping get it get a sign but also rescuing the mix because after we were finished with all the recording we had this big mess on our hands and we didn't we didn't have the skills you know we tried mixing it but we really didn't have the skills to do it and so uh you know he was touring at the time but he spent some time with us in LA and and you got that mix you know it's a it's kind of a weird mix but it works and it is the historical mix. Mm -hmm. You guys all went back over to the States. The album was released and you toured. We, uh, we played again one show and at the Ford Theater, I think it was in Detroit area. Um, and again, you know, um, the main man management uh, felt like, you know, they, they tried to, to work the kind of star thing where, you know, everybody was, you know, too, too important to play, you know, and, and they, you know, they would hold off and hold off. And then I, I think they also got a little disillusioned with us because we, we sort of weren't, um, we weren't very good, very good uh, participants in the, in the pop star, you know, aspects of it. We were just guys that wanted to play music and, um, we couldn't understand why we weren't allowed to do it. We would rehearse all the time. But uh, eventually, I think all the uh, extracurricular activities that resulted from us, you know, being frustrated, really, um, ended up, you know, just sort of the we parted company with our with main man. And uh, and then then became a whole new um, kind of aspect of the band.
this period, there's, a, there's you know, there's quite a few demos that, that you worked with Iggy, and, and obviously you you came back to them, you know, and with the relicked uh, project. And I want to play uh, your version with Jello Biafra head on head on the curve. What what's your memories of you know that track and and that period? Yeah, well, the um, so we're exactly you're exactly on on uh, on pace with with the history <laughs> here. So I. Uh, at that point in time, we then um, moved on to a new management, which was uh, a guy named Jeff Walls, who was uh, kind of notorious, I guess, in in the uh, management world of Hollywood. Uh, he was Helen Reddy's husband. Uh, he was a notoriously huge coke freak. And, you know, gotten lots of fights with all kinds of artists and so on. So this is our new manager. And um, he uh, he had a, a couple of, of different people working for him that ended up working for us. And they put us out on the road. So this was what we really wanted to do anyway. And we had a, a CBS had the option to. Um, to pick us up for another album, and we just assumed that they were going to. So we wrote a whole bunch of new material, and, and you know we were we were very prolific back in those days. So we we would be constantly writing new material and playing the new material for the audiences because we we kind of got bored very easily and and just always wanted to play the new stuff, which is a terrible way to do, to be an entertainer because nobody knows you know, the songs. But, but anyway, that's the way we were. So we had all this new material we were playing. And, and of course, over the course of those tours, uh, people would be recording it and there'd be bootlegs generated out of all that stuff. CBS never picked up our album. So Many years later, just like in 2015, I, I I sort of decided, okay, well, you know, I'd really love to hear how this stuff would sound in the studio. And so I invited a, a whole bunch of uh, singers, 14 all together, to come in and sing on these tracks. And um, kind of where the Jello track came from is in one of our last uh, shows in fact i think it was our last show at san jose california uh jello came to the show i promised him you know if i ended up doing it i would i would ask him to come in and and he did so so i guess that's the track you're going to be playing i certainly am let's play it head on the curve i think i hear it come in Think I hear it? Come in.
The Stooges split. Iggy then was kind of doing some demos, and it was was that what led to the what eventually got released as Kill City and and um, I've chosen the No Sense of Crime track. Yeah, um, yeah. We the band kind of uh, again. Actually, you might. I'm sure you're aware of Metallic Ko. Those shows that were recorded from live tapes and still on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was kind of the end. I mean, we had been out touring, you know, hand to mouth, and really, we're all kind of sick of it. And and um, so the band sort of um, just it wasn't really conscious so much as it was just like, you know fed up you know the you know i mean nobody nobody needs to get you know beer bottles thrown at them and you know cameras and all this stuff it's just it wasn't working and so uh 
However, Iggy uh, and I thought we could still maybe pull together a new record deal. So we started to create new songs and, uh, and record them on my little cassette player. And um, along came Ben Edmonds, who was a good friend of ours from Cream Magazine. And Ben Edmonds, um, because of his connections at Cream Magazine, he had also made lots of connections with various different artists and, and so on. And one of those was Jimmy Webb. Um, you know, we, we, we tried, uh, you know, Jim, Jimmy Webb being the famous songwriter, you know, of, uh, of, you know, so many songs, uh, what is it, uh, MacArthur's Park and, uh, you know, by the time I get to Phoenix, blah, blah, blah. It's just so, the list is so long. But, um, anyway, Jimmy Webb had a studio at his house and, uh, eventually after we had sort of gone through all the different possibilities for getting, uh, getting some, you know, getting some support from other artists. Eventually, you know, he, he, uh, he, he knocked on Jimmy Webb's door and basically said, Jimmy said, sure, you know, that'll be fine. And, and my brother isn't, an, is an engineer, but you're going to have to buy him a bag of weed every day. And so, so that was kind of the cost of the sessions. And, um, and so we, um, yeah, that's where, that's where that came from. So we, we created that album. Uh, it really was not quite an album yet. You know, we, we kind of did, those were really demos. Um, but it was, it was pretty far along and, and it, but it wasn't until, uh, later that, that I actually was asked by, uh, Greg Shaw at Bomp Records to, to complete it. And so that that's a whole nother, you know, discussion. But uh, anyway, you you can hear now. And I, I hope I don't know which version you have uh, queued up, but there there is a, a version that I went back in with uh, Ed Cherney, uh, who's a very well-known engineer in L.A. and uh, remixed and remastered that record. So if you don't have that version at some point for your own benefit, you should get it because it's really, it really brings that record to life. Yeah. I think, I think I've got the remastered version. So, okay, good. Let's, uh, let's give that one a spin.
Yozaniki's path continued to cross and, you know, going into uh, his solo career, you, you worked with Iggy on the New Values album and, uh, you know, you co-wrote a track, Don't Look Down. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, you know, at, at that point after Kill City, you know, I pretty much, uh, I kind of gave up on, on the music, uh, being in a band and everything. And so I, I uh, went to work at a recording studio, uh, Paramount Recorders in L.A. I learned a lot, you know, doing that. Uh, you know, I, I figured, you know, I needed to do something. And so I, I uh, started thinking I could do that. But uh, after after a while there, I finally came to the realization that, you know, there, there there's uh, there's only one thing worse than being in a band with guys you don't like, and that's, recording guys you don't like every single day you know and so it just wasn't for me I mean some people can can put all that aside and just be very professional but I wasn't one of them and so uh eventually uh I just happened upon uh, being at an electronics store since I had gotten interested in electronics and by being in the studio and trying to keep everything going like it was like some kind of a, a thing from 2000 and what was it? One a space odyssey. It, it was like a personal computer. It was like the first one I had ever heard of or seen or anything. And it was really super primitive back in those days, like with front panel switches to boot them up and, you know, really arcane stuff. But um, it fascinated me, and, and so that sort of led me into the next phase of my life, which was to really want to be able to, to design one of those things. It was very exciting for me. So anyway, I'm off doing all that stuff, and I get this phone call from Iggy. You want to produce an album for me? You know, and I, I, I'm like, well, you know, I don't know. The only thing was I didn't care about punk. Yeah, so you, you you worked with Iggy on the New Values album, and then was called in on Soldier, but that kind of broke down. That's right. Yeah, the the Soldier thing was was just a big mistake. I I I probably it's it's really my fault for taking the job because I wasn't you know I I didn't think that uh, we were prepared to do it. The record company was again not happy. <laughs> you know, they they had felt like they they thought they were going to get you know uh, something else than what they got, and so then they wanted me to come go over to England this time to Wales to to uh, the uh, what was it Rock Rockfield Studios and to you know make a punk record so they they hired all these you know punk musicians and all this stuff and i i really uh, i'm getting ahead of this story but anyway that that was kind of a a big mistake on on soldier we just call it quits so you went back to your it career yeah i did and in fact that was the last uh musical um thing that i did until 2009 um at that point, I just head down in in the sort of the world of, of technology, and I really had I have no regrets about that. I I was so fortunate because you know it was so early on that there was no real personal computer, there was no internet, there was none of the stuff that we 
think of today. Uh, and so I got kind of a front row seat in the Silicon Valley uh, as this all sort of unfolded. And it was a very, very exciting time. But again, the call from McGee eventually got you full, fully back into the studios after Ron's uh, very sad death. Yeah, you know, it, it was an odd uh, 
an odd way that came about. Um, the, you know, I had had an entire career in technology at that point, and so it was, uh, you know, 2008 was a huge economic downturn, and so all companies were, you know, sort of looking at ways to cut costs, and and one of the ways corporations always do that is that people over a certain age, they start offering them early retirement packages uh, because it, it eventually it gets the people off their books and it also, uh, you know, is attractive for the employees. So anyway, they were doing that at Sony, which is where I was working, and I was looking at it. I mean, I didn't really, I could have gone either way on it, but I was sort of leaning towards taking it because I was still, you know, young enough that it didn't you know, it was kind of cool actually so anyway i got the call about that time from iggy and at first i told him no because i really i wasn't sure i could do it you know i hadn't played guitar in you know like 40 years and i um i also you know just didn't know if i wanted to do it but uh then once i really decided to take the retirement package then i'm like going well you know, I kind of owe it to these guys. I mean, we were we were buddies in our twenties, and um, you know, we had we went through a lot of stuff together, and so you know, they kind of needed me. I mean, there's there's not a lot of ways you can replace Stooges. I mean, you know, you can put guys in there, but it's not the same. And so, so I finally just came to the conclusion of like, why not? And uh, fortunately for me, I had. Uh, so some months before our first show, which was in Sao Paulo, Brazil, that fall, so I had enough time to sort of woodshed and, and try some things out and, and uh, you know, get back to where I could play a, a professional show. And, um, you know, we, we did that then for, for the next, you know, five years. The interesting thing about this as well is that not only did you play the old tracks, but you actually recorded new material with the Ready to Die album, which, you know, again, you, you know, you co-wrote all the material and again, really, really well received, you know, tracks like Sex and Money and The the Departed, which has got that first, you know, the first one there was that sort of heavier sound and then more of that acoustic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That one, on that one, I used um, what what's called a Weisenborn guitar, which is a kind of a, uh, lap steel, kind of acoustic lap steel, if you will. It, it was very popular in the 20s uh, with with the high, kind of Hawaiian craze, if you will. Um, a guy named Herman Weisenborn made those, and, it, it, you know, it's just got this incredible eerie, you know, sound. It's just an amazing instrument. So, yeah, I, 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 was, I was very happy to get a, a chance or Actually, I wrote a song so I could play the Weisenborn. <laughs> Yesterday's door 
must have been so different this time, you know, in the face of indifference, you know, for 40 years before to get huge acclaim this time and packed out crowds. Yeah, uh, it was incredibly different. And I was astonished, to be honest with you. I mean, yeah, we, you know, I go to my first show, it's 40,000 people in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I'm like, you know, the biggest gig we ever, ever played in the back in the day was maybe 2000 people. And that was, you know, because we were on a bill with Alice Cooper or something like that. So, you know, this was an entirely different thing. Um, and we played very large shows, you know, festivals up to maybe 300,000 people. And so it was a completely different thing. Um, the band was completely different. I mean, Iggy had become quite professional. Um, so he didn't, he was never late for anything. He didn't miss shows. You know, it was, it was business. And so, um, yeah, you know, I come back one year after I'm in the band, uh, we're inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, never dreamed of anything like that. Not that I cared, but, but it was so wonderful to get that sort of validation uh, from the industry that we never got uh, throughout our entire career. So, so really the whole, the whole five years that we did that, I, I refer to it as a sort of victory lap tour. You know, we just kind of went everywhere um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, getting that adulation that we never got in back in the day. It was great. But then sadly, Scott died and, and the Stooges as a, as a band, obviously, with can't make it work without Ron and Scott. Yeah, that's basically that's right. I mean, you know, the the uh, it's never as simple as one thing. Um, I think that when you go out and tour like that, uh, five years is a, is a fairly long time, and you're out there going around the world. It's a you know it's always it it always seems like it's so glamorous because at that point you know we're in good hotels with good flights and good everything. But the fact of the matter is, is schlepping around the world is is tough. And, um, you know, we, yes, we wrote some new material, but we weren't playing that many of those songs. Mostly we played the old stuff because that's kind of what people wanted to hear. Only thing is when you're playing them, it's like you just become a jukebox. And so, you know, every night you're playing the same songs. So after about five years, that kind of gets kind of boring and, and then on top of that, then Scotty started getting sick and, so we had we didn't really have uh, him playing the last year or so at all, and and so uh, we had uh, Larry Mullins, uh, who calls himself Toby Dammon on on stage. Uh, we had him playing drums, and then of course Watt had been a kind of a sideman on bass forever. So slowly, then uh, it became apparent that there, you know, it was, it really wasn't, uh, there were only two Stooges actually. And then if you count Steve McKay, um, you know, three. And so, so that's really, it kind of just was dwindling down. And then finally when Scotty passed away and then Steve passed away as well, it was just kind of like, okay, well, you know, we, we can't do this anymore. It's, it doesn't make any sense. 
But going back to the relit material again, you know, you revisited and, and recorded, you know, the the material in that sort of final Stooges period again, you know, tracks like Open Up and Bleed, which uh, you did with Carolyn Wonderland, yeah. you know, material like that deserves, you know, deserves a, you know, a fully finished version. Oh, I, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm so happy that I did that. And, uh, you know, really Carolyn just killed it on that tune. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I was thrilled to death to work with her. And actually, if you hear the flip side, give me some skin. That's also just, she just rocks that thing. Hmm. So I'm, I, uh, I, I think probably, you know, while I, you know, occasionally get some flack from some Iggy, I call them Iggyots, um, the people who are just like dyed in the wool Iggy people. I think if you put all that aside, the, the people really brought it to these tracks because they, they, they wanted to be, it's not like they were trying to take over the role of Iggy, but rather pay tribute to, to, to the songwriting that we did in those days and, 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 you know, try to do their interpretation of those songs.
how did you get to work with Alison Mosshart until the end of the night? But had you heard of Alison before, or was Alison suggested to you? Yeah, no, uh, I had not. And um, there, there is a good uh, a good friend working. BMG is is uh, our publishing company, and a good uh, good guy at BMG, John Seidel. Um, who's kind of an A&R guy for BMG, had, I was talking to him about this record, which I was in the process of making, and he suggested, Allison, that he thought she was cool and that uh, somebody I would like and, you know, like working with. And he was right. I mean, you know, he, he, um, he kind of brokered that and got, uh, got Allison into L.A., for, in, into the studio with me. And she's just a cool, you know, cool chick i mean she she just knows she gets it and um we uh you know we got mark lanigan in there to do a duet with her and they they got along well and so yeah it it was just all a a fairly good uh good experience i think for everybody i don't think we had any any real problems even though we had a lot of a lot of uh, star power on that record
bringing things um, up to date, we've got um, your remade version of I Need Somebody with Dennis Tech, um, uh, you know, for Acoustic KO. What was the idea behind that project? Well, you know, it's uh, I, I spend a lot of time in Hawaii these days, and um, it turns out that, that so does he. And so uh, I had met Dennis for the first time when we did the Ron Ashton uh, tribute show in Ann Arbor. And Dennis originally comes from Ann Arbor, and then uh, his dad worked at the university, and, and so he then went over to Australia to work in a university and, and uh, brought the family with them. And so Dennis ended up in Australia. And of course, later in his life, uh, formed the uh, Radio Birdman. And so it, that's his claim to fame. Anyway, I'd never run into him before, but I did at that show and we kind of got along pretty well. And so um, we kept in touch throughout the touring. And when I was in Australia or whatever, I would meet with him and his later to be wife and tech or uh, what who was uh, uh, Anne Laurent at that point, who's a pretty well-known photographer in New York. So anyway, um, we uh, once we both found out we were over on the same island in Hawaii, we started hanging out and, and kind of discussing, you know, uh, just bouncing around kind of odd things like playing lounges, lounge act or something, you know, just for just for something to say, you know. But um, then then the, the thought occurred, well, you know, why don't we why don't we do an acoustic album? That would be kind of cool. And so decided to do it. And uh, so that's that's how it, how it got going. Fantastic. Let's play the acoustic version of I Need Somebody.
James, um, we teased this uh, near the start of the show. We had to play a track from uh, your new album with the uh, the Pink Hearts, Pink Hearts Across the Sky. And this song has Petra's vocals on it and got a bit more of a, an Americana feel to, to this one, a bit more acoustic. Yeah, it's an interesting track because it, uh, I think of all the material and there's, it's so, it's the, the breadth of the, of the material is so wide. But, uh, this particular song, I think, if anything, is, you know, you know, I bite my tongue, a, kind of a mainstream song. <laughs> You know, it's just kind of a cool song. And, and the thing about it is that it sticks with you. I mean, once you, this is one of those songs that you just keep hearing to yourself, even though maybe you don't want to. I don't know. But it's kind of a upbeat, um, you know, kind of uh, feel good song, if you will. But in a, it, there's some there's some undercurrents to it as well in the lyrics. And so it's a, it's an interesting one. That's great. You know, thank you so much for your time today, James. Uh, hopefully we've represented what is, uh, you know, an incredible musical journey. Your uh, website, I think, is is it straightjameswilliamson.com? That's right. You know, it has uh, it has sort of links to, you know, all the various different directions. Because, you know, we have a band page and, you know, distributor and whatever. But uh, but everything you need to know is 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 there. Before we go, is there any plans for any live shows, or is this a, a studio project? No, we're we're going to tour it. Um, we're right now. We've got a couple of shows coming up. Uh, one in one in L.A. Uh, June 29th, and then the next day in San Francisco, June 30th. Um, the album doesn't come out until June 22nd, so it's a little bit late for for all the you know sort of festival season and so on but we've got the agents working on on shows um throughout the united states anyway in in uh, august and september and i hope to get over to london uh with it as well we have to you know like i say we kind of missed the summer season but um you know we're still working through all the details of the touring so hopefully you'll get over here to the UK and London and uh, play some shows. I hope so. I, I love it over there. And, and uh, I'm, uh, you know, we'll just have to see, uh, you know, what we can put together. But uh, certainly it would be a, a pleasure to do it. Thank you, James. Um, so, such a privilege. Um, and, um, you know, I wish you all the best with the album. Thank you, Jason. I enjoyed uh, talking with you. And so did I. Thank you again. Cheers, James. Okay. You too. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Patrons get access to unedited interviews as they're done, news, plus even access to my exclusive interview archive. All your support goes into keeping the show running and moving forward and getting amazing guests. To support me, just go to patreon.com forward slash strangebrewpod or go to the strangebrew.co.uk forward slash about. Thanks very much and any reviews on your podcasting services are greatly appreciated. Thank you.